This is a special edition of Macro Voices with hedge fund manager Eric Townsend, the premier financial podcast targeting professional finance, high net worth individuals, family offices, and other sophisticated investors. Now, for this special edition of Macro Voices, here's hedge fund manager Eric Townsend. Macro Voices All-Stars, episode 99, was recorded on March 30th, 2020. I'm Eric Townsend. This episode of Macro Voices All-Stars is brought to you by TopTradersUnplugged.com, the leading podcast when it comes to quant and rules-based investing. I'll tell you how to claim a free copy of their new guide to the best investing books ever written at the end of this episode. Joining me today is GavCal co-founder, Louis Vincent Gav. Louis, some of the time when you're not in the beautiful ski resort town of Whistler, you're in Hong Kong. And, you know, it seems to me like not enough people in the West are talking about the fact that Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, these are countries that went through the SARS crisis in 2003. When confronted with this crisis, it seems to me like both the government and society at large knew what to do, and they managed to get it contained. Obviously, they had deaths, they had cases. It was a big deal, but it was nowhere close to as big of a deal as Italy has experienced or as the U.S. is about to experience. You have both run a company in Hong Kong, had employees in Hong Kong, and lived there for many more years than I have. What's your perspective on how this went down, and what should the rest of the world be learning from Hong Kong? First of all, thanks again for having me. Delighted to be here. It's always great to catch up with you, Eric. You know, one of the quips I've heard about uh, about this COVID crisis is that uh, COVID-19 is, is like pasta, in that it was invented by the Chinese, but really it was the Italians that made it a global phenomena. And, you know, one of the things that I'm struggling with as I look at this crisis is that if you look at the death numbers, to your point, in Hong Kong, we have four deaths. In Singapore, we have two deaths. In Japan, we have 54 deaths, even though Japan, frankly, has been one of the few countries to pretty much do very, very little in terms of uh, policy measures to tackle this, uh, this outbreak. I think Korea is uh, around 150. And China, if you trust the official numbers, which very few people do, but anyway, they are what they are. You've got about 3,300. Compare that with, say, Italy, where you're already at more than 10,000 deaths, or Spain, where you're already at more than 7,000 deaths, etc. You have to wonder why the massive divergence in outcomes. You know, the outcomes across Asia, frankly, have looked fairly benign. You know, when you think of the size of the population, Asia's 60% of, of the global population, frankly, not that many deaths. Meanwhile, you look at Europe, Europe is about 600 million people. And the death rate continues to, uh, to grow. And so, yeah, to your point, I think when, when the crisis started, uh, it was possible to look at Asia and say, all right, well, you know, is this really that big a deal? If 3,300 people died in China out of 1.4 billion people, do I really need to worry about this that much? And it was easy to brush it aside. We've only really witnessed the, the devastation of this disease when it hits Europe. So the big question is, how come Asia did so much better with this than Europe? And increasingly, it looks like the Americas as well. One, one possibility, I think, is, is the one that you hint at, the fact that from a policy standpoint, Asia was better prepared. You go to a, uh, an airport in Asia, you, you, know, you have your temperature taken. You go to uh, 
people wear masks uh, as soon as they feel like they might be getting sick. The, the natural reflex is to wear a mask. And of course, there's a lot less concerns about privacy rights. Uh, and what you have is uh, you had immediately tracking of your whereabouts through cell phones and who got close to you. And so people went, the policymakers went through the chain of who talked to whom and, and try to quarantine the right people. But I think there's also an, another possibility, of course. So that's one possibility. The, the other possibility, also to your point, is that Asia was exposed, people in Asia were exposed to SARS uh, 15, or was it 2003, so 17 years ago. People were exposed to SARS. They probably have been exposed to various COVID viruses since. And so maybe there's just a different level of herd immunity in Asia than there is in Europe to a disease like COVID-19. And I'm not saying that COVID-19 is the smallpox and that uh, we Europeans are now the Native Americans, but there is, you know, it seems to me when I look at the difference in outcome between Europe and Asia, that, you know, perhaps the immunity levels in Asia to something like this are, are greater than they are in Europe. And if that's the case, well, whatever the reason, whether the better outcome in Asia was linked to better policies or if it's linked to higher immunity, it still leaves you with the conclusion that, as things stand, you're better off deploying assets in Asia rather than the Western world. And to me, you know, that's one of the big lessons of this crisis, of course. This is the first crisis in my lifetime where Asia, in the middle of a meltdown, Asian equities, Asian currencies, even uh, something like Chinese Sphinx income, outperforms quite considerably most other uh, Western asset classes. And that performs with a much lower volatility. This is not the normal pattern. In a downturn, usually Asia gets beaten like a redhead stepchild. And so this time around, you know, Asian markets have been much more resilient than Western markets. To me, this makes sense because if Asia, if the outcome is better in Asia, then whether because of policy or because of, uh, of herd immunity, that's where you want to have your money. Louis, obviously the whole world is focused on the coronavirus crisis, but you have written recently that really it's not just a coronavirus crisis. It's actually three crises in one. What are the other two crises? Yeah, no, look, I think uh, obviously the COVID-19 grabs all the, all the headlines, but behind the COVID-19 lies two other problems. The first, of course, is the solvability crisis unfolding across the energy space. I mean, simply put, hundreds of billions has been invested in uh, the energy sector over recent years. And out of those 100 billions, the idea behind those 100 billions was the idea that oil prices would stay about 50 bucks. At $25 or below, large segments of the oil uh, sector basically need to be written off. You need to see assets move from weak hands to strong hands, and this has yet to happen. So that's your second crisis. Your third crisis, I think, is as oil prices moved to $25 and below, you had a number of large sovereign wealth funds, Middle Eastern sovereign wealth funds, and Scandinavian sovereign wealth funds, Central Asian sovereign wealth funds, all of which are you know, built to be automatic stabilizers for oil-producing countries. So you know, naturally, maybe they start selling assets, but they did, did so in a market where there was no liquidity in a market where there was no liquidity, partly because there were no traders. And so you start to see the dislocations that we saw in recent weeks, where all of a sudden municipal bonds might fall 12%, where all of a sudden you started to see massive discounts on various ETFs, discounts that made no sense, that would normally be arbitraged away 
that would normally be arbitraged away by investment banks. But this arbitrage opportunity is uh, uh, not being grabbed because there are no traders on desks. So you end up with really three separate crises, a liquidity crisis, which the Fed is now addressing by flooding the system with liquidity, an energy solvency crisis, which probably needs to be addressed by the energy sector itself through massive consolidation with assets moving from weak hands to strong hands, and the COVID crisis, which is, of course, a healthcare crisis for which we need a public health response uh, and hopefully also a medical response through vaccines and, and whatever else. My concern today is that while the Fed is fortunately dealing with the third crisis, the liquidity crisis, uh, we may have another fourth crisis, another sucker punch coming straight for our noses, looming in the background. And that fourth crisis uh, would be the unfolding of a, an issue in Europe. I'm sure that you saw that last Thursday's European meeting between the heads uh, of the various European governments was particularly ill-tempered. I mean, in essence, the issue is that the Italian prime minister is dealing with a crisis of epic proportions, a humanitarian crisis, a medical crisis, and of course, a financial and economic crisis. Against this, he obviously needs a very large amounts of money. Now, Germany's response is basically telling the Italians, well, look, tap the ESM, you know, the, the lending facility that was put in place in 2012, 2013. So tap the ESM and uh, get the cash that you need. But the Italians' response is, we don't want to tap the ESM because that basically puts us under Brussels' rule of thumb and forces us to agree to fiscal consolidation down the line. Fiscal consolidation that is unacceptable, you know, given the uh, uncertainties that uh, Italy faces. Uh, Italy responds, what we want is we need to start to show European solidarity, of which there's been none so far, and start to issue European bonds. Of course, European bonds are impossible for Germany. They're unconstitutional in Germany and would require to go through a change of the constitution, which would require two-thirds of the Bundestag, so it's not going to happen. And so Conte is increasingly in a tough bind, whereby what he needs, Germany can't give, and what uh, he could do is politically, basically political suicide for him. Now, you know, chances are, against this background, the Europeans will work out some kind of fudge as they have in the past. The one reason why they might not be able to work out a fudge, of course, is that you're now dealing with political leaders that are emotionally exhausted and drained and who aren't even able to meet face-to-face. -face. Uh, everything is done through video conference calls, which, as you well know, isn't as good as meeting face-to-face. -face. When you meet face-to-face, -face, you can have side conversations over a coffee. You can say, all right, I'll give you this if you give me that. Much harder to do when you're in a full room uh, full of people. So all this to say, my fear is that when I look at last Thursday's European Council, basically nothing was agreed except the idea that they would meet again in two weeks' time to hash it out. Now, hopefully over the next two weeks, things get better in Europe, the death rates start to roll over, and the crisis abates. If the crisis continues unabated over the next two weeks in Europe, I think that in two weeks, we could be confronting a very, very tough situation. And I'll finish with just one last thing here on this, is that if you believe in Ron Emanuel's saying that you shouldn't let a good crisis go to waste, if you're Italy and you think, well, maybe we need to leave the euro, doing so at a time when your entire economy is in lockdown 
and your entire economic growth for the year is a write-off anyway, may not be uh, the silliest idea. In essence, if you want to leave the euro, now's the time to do it. Louis, I can't thank you enough for another terrific All-Stars update. We look forward to getting you back in a few weeks for another update. This episode of Macro Voices All-Stars was made possible by TopTradersUnplugged.com, the leading podcast on quant and rules-based investing. Be sure to claim your free copy of their recently updated guide to the best investing books ever written at toptradersunplugged.com forward slash macro guide. And if you haven't heard it yet, be sure to check out my full-length interview with Niels Kastrup-Larsen on trend-following strategies, which is linked in your research roundup email. For the Macro Voices Podcast Network, I'm Eric Townsend. That concludes this edition of Macro Voices. Be sure to tune in each week to hear feature interviews with the brightest minds in finance and macroeconomics. Please register your free account at macrovoices.com. Once registered, you'll receive our free weekly research roundup email containing links to supporting documents from our featured guests and the very best free financial content our volunteer research team could find on the internet each week. You'll also gain access to our free research library. And the more registered users we have, the more we'll be able to recruit high-profile feature interview guests for future programs. So please register your free account today at macrovoices.com if you haven't already. You can subscribe to Macro Voices on iTunes to have Macro Voices automatically delivered to your mobile device each week free of charge. Macro Voices is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Macro Voices should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Macro Voices are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Macro Voices, its producers, sponsors, and hosts, Eric Townsend, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Macro Voices.